text for the sermon this morning is Luke chapter 1, the verses 68 through 79. In Irlandia, leading up to Christmas, we've done a series looking at the different songs that are recorded at the beginning of Luke's gospel. This morning I've taken the sermon focusing on the song of Zechariah. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to start reading at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So far the words of our text. And after the sermon, we will begin to respond by singing these words as they've been set to music for us in hymn 18. We sing all three stanzas. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at the inspired songs that we find in Luke's gospel, then the second one we come across is commonly called the Song of Zechariah. And like the Song of Mary, which is the first song that you find in this gospel, the Song of Zechariah has been given a Latin title. It's often referred to as the Benedictus. That title comes from the first word of the song in the Latin translation of the Bible. And when you look at both songs, Song of Mary, Song of Zechariah, and you compare them, many of the same themes will come out in both songs. You'll also see that both songs are firm, firmly grounded in the language of the Old Testament. However, Zechariah does present things in a slightly different way. And that's explained to an extent when we look at the words that we read immediately before our text, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Our, the words of our text are normally called the Song of Zechariah, but it's important that we understand these words to be a prophecy. That fact changes how we look at these words as well. Because we know from 1 Peter that prophets would at times speak without understanding the meaning of what they said. But they still spoke, carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And therefore, the words of Zechariah need to be understood in that way, as a prophecy. Namely, they need to be understood as a message from God to his people at that time, speaking about what would happen. Zechariah prophesied of what these two children would do as they carried out their God-given tasks here on this earth. But they were not only words for God's people 2,000 years ago, they're also for us today, as we have just celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior once again. It's through these words of Zechariah that we are again reminded about the true reason for this season, but we're also reminded about where everything's going in the future. And so this morning I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme, bless the Lord for visiting his people with salvation. And we'll see that this salvation comes through the child prophesied and that it's prophesied by the child born. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah begins his song or his prophecy in a very similar way to Mary. If you look at Mary's song just a few verses earlier, you'll see that it starts by blessing the Lord, magnifying the Lord, praising God. And even the words, these opening words, they show how rooted Zechariah is in the language of the Old Testament. That opening line, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, you find that line in a number of places in the Psalms. You see, for example, in Psalm 41, verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Same thing is found in Psalm 106, which we just sang. Psalm 106, verse 48 in Scripture, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. But what's interesting is that these words in the Psalms are found at the end of the Psalm. They're the final conclusion of a believer who has considered different things. If you look at Psalm 41, then David reflects on his enemies and those who hate him, also language that you find in the Song of Zechariah. And when David thinks about how God has dealt with him and compared to how his enemies have dealt with him, he's led to bless the Lord as his response. In Psalm 106, and if you read that psalm, the psalmist reflects on how God has dealt with his people throughout their history, showing mercy, showing compassion, even though the people sinned and they rebelled time and again. And in the end, the only fitting response is to bless the Lord. But then the fact that Zechariah uses these same words, but he puts them at the beginning of his song, rather than the end, it makes it clear that we have a transition taking place here. In his song, Zechariah is not necessarily going to look back in the past to see what God has done. He will focus on how God has fulfilled all his promises of old in the present and how they will be further unfolded in the events of the future. But he begins with the present. He says that the Lord has visited his people. Again, Old Testament language. We read a number of times in the Old Testament where the Lord would visit his people. It shows God's active intervention in the lives of his people and in the events of this world. And when God would visit, it could be for one of two reasons. 
He could visit with judgment, but he could also visit with mercy. And it's that second one that Zechariah has in mind here. God has shown mercy to his people by looking favorably on them and visiting once again, intervening for their good. And that's shown by the words that follow, namely that God has not only visited, but also redeemed his people. Now, when Zechariah says that God has redeemed his people, he's again drawing very heavily on the language of the Old Testament. Anyone in Israel who was hearing those words, being redeemed, it would immediately call to mind for them the language of the Exodus. Many of us know that time in Scripture. It was a major event in the history of Israel where God had actively intervened. He'd redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. Or to use the language of Zechariah, God had redeemed his people from their enemies and those who hated them. So by drawing heavily on the language of the Exodus, Zechariah is making it clear to all those listening that these current events happening at his time are not just random events, they're not just chance events, but these are powerful interventions of God. This is God fulfilling the words spoken by the holy prophets of old. This is God raising a horn of salvation from the line of David. And also the fact that Zechariah includes that horn from the line of David, that's interesting because it shows the direction he's taking here in his song. When you think about it, his own son had just been born eight days ago. A miraculous birth in and of itself. He'd just been circumcised and officially named. So it would have been very normal and very expected for Zechariah to focus on the birth of his son and to sing about that. But that's not his first focus. Zechariah is not from the line of David, as you recall. Zechariah is from the line of Levi. So clearly he is not focusing on his son John at this point. That comes later on. Rather, he is first of all focusing on the descendant of David, the one who is about to enter this world and who would carry out the work that God had spoken about through his holy prophets. And no doubt Elizabeth had shared this information with Zechariah after her visit with Mary. And what work this would be. Zechariah speaks about the horn of salvation. A horn at that time symbolized power and strength. And the reason such power would be needed was because it would be a great struggle, a great battle that would be taking place. The one from the line of David was coming to fight in order to save God's people from their enemies and those who hate them, according to verse 71. But the question is, who are these enemies? Who are these haters that Zechariah is speaking about here? Many suggest that it was the despised Roman authorities at the time. They look at Zechariah's song and they say that it's filled with political undertones, 
He's looking forward to the time where God's people are free from their oppression of a great world empire. But that would ignore the whole context of how Zechariah speaks throughout this prophecy. Let's work this out a little bit. If we look back at verse 68, he uses that word redeem. And that's a word that you find only three times in the entire New Testament, including here. You also find it in Luke 2, where it speaks about Anna telling everyone about the child after she had seen him in the temple. She speaks to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. But then it's also used in Hebrews 9, verse 12. And there it says that the Son of God has obtained an eternal redemption. So there's not a focus here on political enemies and deliverance. The focus is on the spiritual aspect. And we can see further evidence of this in verse 74, where Zechariah says that the result of deliverance will be serving the Lord without fear. And serving the Lord, that's not just because of external Uh, factors that are going to change, but it's because of an inward change that will take place. He's not talking about fear of persecution from earthly rulers. He's speaking about worshiping the Lord as part of a renewed fellowship that exists between God and His people. And there's even more evidence to support this, because in the second part of his song in verse 77, he speaks about the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's the redemption that truly matters here. From all these things, it's clear Zechariah is not prophesying about salvation from earthly enemies who can only do the people harm in this life. He is speaking about a much greater salvation so that no harm can come to them after life here on earth is over. Yes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah is not focused on the small picture, He's focused on the big picture, about how this coming child from the line of David will save his people from their greatest enemies. And again, you can think back to the Old Testament. For when you start at the beginning, then you see that enmity was not a human invention. Enmity was not something that started between two people or two parties. No, the first enmity was set in place by God. It was when God spoke to the serpent in paradise, and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Many of us recognize those words from Genesis 3, verse 15. They're the words of the great mother promise, where God promises that he's going to intervene to provide salvation and deliverance. And again, he's not talking about worldly enemies, but he's talking about the enemies of God, those who are filled with a deep-seated hatred of all that is good. And it's with this coming of the child from the line of David, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, it's with his coming that God will fulfill all those promises of old going right back to the beginning. And that's what Zechariah is really focused on here as he blesses the Lord. The same thing is found in the song of Mary. God is praised for the fact that he is faithful 
to all his promises. And again, it begins with God taking action and with God working out of his own character. That's what we find in verse 72 of our text. And when you look at the Song of Zechariah, you see that it's clearly divided into two parts. There are two rather long sentences, the first from verses 68 through 75, and the second from verse 76 to 79. Now, in that first section where Zechariah speaks about the work of the Lord Jesus, then at the center, you have verse 72. That's the heart of this first part of the song. And there the text speaks about God showing mercy, God remembering his holy covenant. And what Zechariah makes clear is the fact that God's mercy and God's remembrance, they're not just things in his mind, but they result in specific and concrete actions on God's part. When God shows mercy, it's not just a nice thought that goes through his mind. It's something that leads him to dealing differently with his people than what they deserve. When God remembers something, it's not just a memory that enters his mind and then is quickly forgotten again like it is with us. Instead, it leads God to take action and to work with what he remembers. And in this case, Zechariah blesses the Lord because as a result of his mercy, because he remembers his holy covenant, God intervenes by working salvation. He does so through powerful actions, bringing his son into this world through miraculous means. And that, of course, gives us every reason for us to bless the Lord as well, also in this Christmas season. Because we know how the Lord has fulfilled this prophecy of Zechariah. We know how the Son of God, Jesus Christ, has defeated death in the grave. We know how he defeated the power of sin, how he redeemed us, how he set us free from the tyranny of Satan. In fact, that is our great comfort as we confess it in Lord's Day 1. But as Zechariah also makes clear in his prophecy, when God works salvation, he does so for a specific purpose. And it's not so that his people might just have that feeling of freedom and comfort in their minds. No, the salvation obtained by Jesus Christ leads God's people to action. According to verses 74 and 75, it leads to serving God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And again, it's worth noting that similar reasoning is found at the time of the Exodus. When Moses confronted Pharaoh and he demanded that Pharaoh let God's people go, then what he said was, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Exodus 7 verse 16. God's work of redemption is done so that his people might serve him. And since we know that through Jesus Christ we have been delivered from the power of sin and Satan, 
then we must also know that we are free to serve the Lord in a renewed relationship, one that he has established. It's our privilege to do so. It's also our obligation out of thankfulness to him. In fact, those who refuse to serve the Lord or who refuse to worship him, they show that they really do not understand the salvation obtained by Christ. Because as part of this salvation, there is a change worked in the life of God's child. The text speaks about worshiping in holiness and righteousness. It's an interesting phrase that's used here because that specific word for holiness is found only two times in the New Testament, including here. The only other time you find this word is in Ephesians 4, verse 24. There you have the command to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, salvation includes transformation, a change, a change that goes right to the core of God's people. It is a change that results in, in a renewed devotion to the Lord. It is a change that results in an increasing desire to serve Him and to worship Him. So when Zechariah prophesies about the salvation that is made a reality through the child from the line of David, he's talking about the complete salvation. A renewed relationship between God and his people. The experience of being free from the power of sin and the tyranny of the devil. It is the longing to worship the God of salvation so that in the lives of believers, God might be truly blessed and praised. Actually, it's a return to how things were in the beginning, before man made a mess of things by falling into sin. That is what we focus on around this time of Christmas. It is the fact that God in His mercy sent His Son into this world, according to the promises made to the fathers in the Old Testament. It is the fact that Jesus Christ has set us free, He's redeemed us so that already today we can begin to live in the joy of salvation. We can begin to serve the Lord more and more every day again. Daily we are busy putting on the new self. Daily our love for the Lord and our response of thankfulness continues to grow. And it continues as long as we are in this world. Because it's in that way that we are also prepared for His second coming and preparing according to the second part of Zechariah's prophecy, preparing is also part of God's work. In verse 76, the prophecy of Zechariah shifts to focusing on the work that his own son would do and he says that his son will be a prophet of the Most High, going before the Lord to prepare his ways. It's also what Gabriel told Zechariah as he was in the temple. And again, it connects back to language of the Old Testament. There are those well-known words of Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 5. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It would be John, the son of Zechariah, who would be the one to fulfill that task. And it's interesting to note how exactly John was to prepare the way for the Lord. Zechariah prophesies in verse 77 that his son will prepare this way by prophesying to the people and giving them knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. That was to be the message that John would come with time and again. It was the good news that salvation was being obtained and that it would result in the forgiveness of sins. He would not obtain it himself, but it would be obtained by the one who came after him. John was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. The task of the messenger is to prepare the people for the coming of the king. And he does so by focusing on the things that are truly important. The herald or the messenger does not have time for fluffy, feel-good messages. He has a limited time. And so it's all about the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. And it's good for us to think about that message a little more. After all, what did Zechariah mean when he spoke about the knowledge of salvation? Does he mean simply teaching the people of God facts, information? Or is there a little more to this message than first meets the eye? Well, the fact that Zechariah speaks about knowledge certainly implies that there is information to be taught. There are concepts, there are doctrines that must be known and understood. Salvation is not just a nice fuzzy feeling that lives inside a person, but it's something that's based on the foundation of the message delivered by the prophets and apostles. At the same time, salvation is not just knowing facts in the mind either. It is very possible for a person to know everything in their head about salvation. They can know all about God and His grace. They can know all the information that God has revealed in His Word. But it remains nothing more than information. Knowledge also includes comprehending things as well. Understanding what the facts and doctrines mean. And that makes it clear that knowledge of salvation is not only something that lives in the head. It's much more than facts that are stored in our brains. The knowledge of salvation implies that the brain and the heart are connected. This knowledge flows out from a person through their words and their actions. The knowledge of salvation leads to a response. It calls for a specific way of life. When you truly know when you truly understand the facts about how Jesus Christ has obtained your salvation through his suffering and his death, it can't just remain in your head. Your thankfulness must overflow from the heart, a heart that is gripped by God's love, a heart that is gripped by God's grace. Salvation is much more than just an abstract concept that we know in our heads. 
And when you see what motivated God to work out this salvation for his people through the sending of his son, that only increases our thankfulness. See, congregation, salvation was not because God had to do it. Salvation was not because man deserved it. Rather, as Zechariah prophesies in verse 78, salvation is motivated by God's tender mercy. Just as God's mercy and remembrance were at the center of the first section in this prophecy, so his tender mercy is at the center of the second section. That's the message John had to proclaim to the people of God. God working in tender mercy. Salvation was being given as a free gift of grace. The forgiveness of sins was being obtained. It is truly the best news that John was charged to bring to the people of Israel, those who were groaning in darkness, those living under the burden of sorrow caused by sin. It's the same message that we sang of in Psalm 130 as well. According to verses 7 and 8, there's every reason for hope and joy. And it's such a striking psalm because the psalm starts with the depths of sadness caused by sin, but then it goes on that incline and it ends with, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God's tender mercy, God's steadfast love prophesied by John was the reason for God to freely forgive all the sins of his people. It was a forgiveness that was going to be obtained through the son of David who came from heaven to earth so that he might suffer and die on the cross. And you see how even though Zechariah is speaking about his son in the second half of his prophecy, he ends again by speaking about what the other son will do. The sunrise shall visit us, he says in verse 78. Now, the language here in the original is somewhat difficult. Literally, the word refers to the upward movement of the celestial bodies. It could be the rising of the sun or the rising of the stars. Most translations choose for the rising of the sun in connection with Malachi 4, verse 2. There, the prophet speaks about the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings. However, while the original is difficult, what the majority of commentators agree on with this passage here in Luke is that it's a reference to another prophecy of the Old Testament. It's a prophecy you find in Numbers 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob. And the star, of course, refers to the Lord Jesus coming into this world. By his coming and the task that he would accomplish, it would result in replacing the darkness of sin with the brilliant light of God's glory. But congregation, what's truly amazing is when you trace the line from beginning to end. Because then again, you see how this prophecy of Zechariah has meaning for us today. We know that this star of Jacob from the line of David has come and has visited God's people. He entered this world that is filled with the darkness of sin. He came bringing the light and glory of God's presence. He removed the darkness of sin. He brought back the light of fellowship with God. He defeated the great enemy of God and God's people. And he has set us free from the power of sin and the slavery to Satan. 
That alone is a message that's worth proclaiming time and again. It's a message that we should want to hear time and again. But the Bible says that this star from David, or this morning star, according to Revelation 22, verse 16, he's coming back. The first time that he came into this world, he did so temporarily. It was a true visit in every sense of the word. A visit does not go on forever, but it comes to an end. We know that. Jesus Christ is no longer physically with us, but he's gone back into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God in glory. We'll deal with that more this afternoon, Lord willing. But he's going to come back. And this time it will be forever, so that the people of God can dwell with him in perfection and glory. And just as God's people had to be prepared for the first coming of Christ, so they must be prepared for his second coming as well. And therefore, God, in his tender mercy and faithfulness, he continues to have that gospel of salvation proclaimed. Not prophesied any longer, but proclaimed. Because we live in a different time than John. We know more than the shadows of the Old Testament. We know to what they pointed, namely the work of Christ here on earth and especially his sacrifice on the cross. We know it because God has told us about it in his word. And that is the message that must be heralded abroad. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, has come. In him alone there is salvation. Through Christ there is the forgiveness of sins. Through Christ there is freedom from sin and redemption from the tyranny of Satan. But that's a message that must not only be proclaimed, it's a message that must also be believed. It's the message that speaks about God's grace and mercy. It's the message that helps us every time we hear it to be ready for the second coming of Christ into this world. Because Christmas is about celebrating God's work accomplished in the past while looking forward to also what God will do in the future. It's opening the eyes of faith awaiting the second coming, the return of our Redeemer on the clouds of heaven. Because it's at that time that our salvation, which we begin to experience already in this life, but it's then that will be complete. It is then that we will be fully clothed with the new self, clothed in true righteousness and holiness. It is then that we will be able to serve and worship the Lord perfectly as he created us to do in the beginning. It is at the second coming of the Lord that all God's promises from of old, they will be completely fulfilled. And then God will be blessed by all his people forever as they dwell in the perfect light of his glory. Amen.